Hello and welcome to this episode of Southeast Asia Dispatches, brought to you by New Narrative. I'm your host, PJ Tha. Southeast Asia Dispatches is a fortnightly podcast series bringing you news, interviews and perspectives from around the region. In this episode, we visit the Rohingya refugee camps on the Myanmar-Bangladesh border around the two-year anniversary of the ethnic minority's exodus from Myanmar. We speak with two students in Malaysia who experienced pushback after taking a stand on what they perceive to be Malay supremacy in their university. And our chief editor talks about the problems with holding discussions on dissent in an activism-averse Singapore. It's been over two years since some 740,000 Rohingya fled state-led violence in Myanmar's Rakhine state. Now housed in the world's most populated refugee camp, daily life presents hurdles to basic human rights, such as access to education, security, freedom of movement, and more. Tensions between Bangladeshi authorities, local hosts, and Rohingya refugees are on the rise, and plans to relocate some 100,000 Rohingya to an island in the middle of the Bay of Bengal have refugees living in fear of what the future holds. Yet conditions in Myanmar, where there's active conflict, continued persecution of religious and ethnic minorities, and no guarantee of citizenship for the Rohingya, are such that refugees say they can't return home. For a special report, Victoria Milko travelled to Cox's Bazaar in Bangladesh to follow up on the protracted refugee crisis. On August 25th, hundreds of Rohingya youth gathered in a dirt clearing, endless decrepit bamboo and tarpaulin structures around them as far as the eye can see. Those gathered in the crowd faced a small makeshift bamboo stage as they listened to fellow Rohingya youth give speeches, sing traditional folk songs, and lead prayers to mark the second anniversary of the attacks that rendered them and hundreds of thousands of others refugees. Months later, their prayers to return to Myanmar, receive an education, or even be granted basic human rights have still been unanswered, forcing them to remain with no end in sight in what has become the most populated refugee camp in the world. The Rohingya, an ethnic Muslim minority, have lived in Myanmar for generations, facing severe persecution. Deep-seated tensions between the Rohingya and Buddhist population in Rakhine have led to deadly communal violence in the past, resulting in hundreds of thousands of Rohingya being forced to live in camps that international humanitarian aid officials have equated to open-air prisons. In these camps, they were denied freedom of movement, access to education, livelihoods, and other basic services such as health care. Tensions reached a boiling point in August 2017, when Rohingya insurgents claiming to be a part of the Rakhine Rohingya Salvation Army, or ARSA, attacked police outposts in Myanmar's western Rakhine state, killing 12 members of security forces. The response from the Myanmar military was brutal, conducting what they called clearance operations that raised entire Rohingya villages. Mob violence from Rakhine Buddhists also resulted in Rohingya villagers being driven from their homes. The area was completely sealed off from the media and NGO workers, with evidence of atrocities only coming to light after the attacks. Those who survived the attacks or managed to flee escaped to neighboring Bangladesh, taking boats or swimming across the Naf River. 
The Rohingya refugees then began to set up camps around two smaller existing Rohingya refugee camps, set up when Rohingya fled persecution in the early 1990s and 2000s. Construction of the camps, which were built in the middle of a natural reserve, resulted in mass deforestation as people sought materials to survive, causing several landslides in the hilly area. As more refugees arrived from Myanmar, the camps continued to expand, ending up in elephant reserve areas, resulting in a Rohingya youth being trampled to death and others critically injured. International aid organizations and the Bangladeshi government quickly began emergency relief efforts. Shelter kits were distributed, roads into the makeshift camp were built, millions of dollars were allocated for food and aid, and medical organizations began to arrive to respond to the refugees' needs. It was then that more information about what happened in Rakhine began to come to light, provided by thousands of survivor testimonies. Surveys conducted by Doctors Without Borders in refugee settlement camps in Bangladesh estimated that at least 9,000 Rohingya died from the attacks in Myanmar between the 25th of August and the 24th of September, with at least 1,000 of the deaths being children under 5 years old. A majority of the deaths are estimated to be from gunshot wounds, but other causes of death are from Rohingya being beaten to death and landmine blasts. Many survivors reported hearing their family members and fellow villagers being burned alive in their homes. Other women report seeing their children, including babies, thrown into fire pits. In August 2019, the United Nations Independent Fact-Finding Mission on Myanmar released a report that stated hundreds of Rohingya women and girls were raped, with 80% of the rapes corroborated by the mission being gang rapes, with the Myanmar military being responsible for a wide majority of the cases. All of the elements are there that point to a possible crimes uh, of genocide that was committed in Rakhine. Yang Healy, the special rapporteur on Myanmar, told CNN. Two years later, the camps are massive, sprawling cities. Bamboo and tarpaulin structures stretch across the horizon as far as the eye can see, often with various United Nations agencies and INGO logos printed across their sides. Brick-laid roads lead in and out of the camps. Women's shelters, medical tents, regular distribution and meeting points are marked every few kilometers. Constant queues for different supplies like food, cooking gas, and water can be seen at any time of day. A sewage treatment facility has even been built in an effort to counterbalance the poor sanitation that exists within the camps. From makeshift charging points powered by solar panels and car batteries, to new prototype structures developed by the United Nations in an effort to improve refugees' quality of life, it's clear that everyday life has much more regular pattern than it did two years ago. But it's still a far cry from a good and normal life. The situation in the camps right now is still a protracted refugee crisis. That's John Quinley, a specialist working with human rights advocacy organization Fortify Rights. There's still need for access to education, access to livelihoods and work, uh, and basic services and information. Not being registered as official refugees, Rohingya refugees who arrived in the past two years have no access to livelihoods and severely restricted freedom of movement. Even going to a doctor outside the camps requires receiving permission from Bangladeshi authorities. Security in the camps is limited, with many fearing that trafficking and forced labor will become increasingly common. Rohingya women also face unique safety risks. Many are kept in their homes or under the watch of family members. The increased security and fear of letting them out makes it hard to interview them. But one of the young Rohingya women I spoke to while in Bangladesh told me of the rise of child marriage in the camps. And there are a few routes to justice if something goes wrong. There is a Bangladeshi-appointed camp in charge, or CIC, for each camp, but few other outlets for Rohingya refugees to express their concerns to. 
Perhaps one of the most pressing issues from the Rohingya refugee community is the continued lack of access to education. Here in Bangladesh uh, refugee camps, many, many Rohingya parents are enough to uh, study, enough uh, for having education. But here in the camp, we are just getting the food to save our lives, just rice, while die like that. But uh, we are not getting any education. That's Sayadullah, a Rohingya refugee and youth living within the camps. But some uh, NGOs and INGUs are working to, with, with the departments of education, like they are providing us education, but they are actually not providing us the education because they built some center here with the name of schools, but in that school they are not learning the education, they are learn, not learning the systematic education, they have not actually any curriculum, they are just teaching some games like Lodu, how to play Lodu and how to play like, uh, snakes, ladder, uh, games like that. They are just teaching uh, games. That's why I think uh, after some years, the generation of Rohingya will destroy the lack of education. Sayadullah's sentiment was echoed by many people from all age groups in the camps. And while Myanmar has so far denied access to their curriculum, the Bangladeshi government has insisted theirs shouldn't be used, stating the Rohingya refugees should be returning home to Myanmar soon. It's one sign that Bangladeshi authorities and locals seem to be growing wary of the nearly one million Rohingya refugees they've been hosting. There are other indicators, too. The Bangladeshi government announced that it was building fences around the camps in order to provide security. But Rohingya activists say that it will curtail their freedom of movement from camp to camp while doing little to improve security. Cell phones, which Rohingya are technically banned from owning, are being confiscated and telecommunication services restricted making it difficult for human rights organizations and journalists to report on the ongoing situation. And tensions are starting to get worse, with two Rohingya refugees shot dead by Bangladeshi police during a gunfight in August. There's also been pressure for some 100,000 Rohingya to move to an island in the middle of the Bay of Bengal. ...in flood-prone island called Basanchar. However, Rohingya refugees in the camps tell Fortify Right they do not want to move to the island at this time. They consider it dangerous and risky. Instead, many Rohingya refugees tell Fortify Rights that they want access to freedom of movement in the country and formalized education. Despite the continued pressure in Bangladesh, Rohingya refugees feel that they don't have the option to return to Myanmar, says Quinley. Fortify Rights and, I, uh, and myself were, were just in Cox's Bazar, Bangladesh, speaking to Rohingya refugees about this subject, about going home. Uh, a lot of the Rohingya refugees said that right now there's still persecution within Rakhine State. They know of the IDP camps that still exist in the country. They know of the attacks against their people that are still ongoing in the country. They know of the restrictions on access to livelihoods, freedom of movement that are still ongoing in the country. These are some of the reasons why the Rohingya at this time will not go back. Their concerns don't come without warrant. In early October 2019, Rohingya attempting to travel from Rakhine to Yangon were arrested and sentenced to two years in prison, including a five-year-old boy. According to the Myanmar government, they were charged for not having proper documentation and permits, which leads to another major concern for Rohingya refugees in Bangladesh. Paperwork. Under Myanmar's controversial 1982 citizenship law, the Rohingya were stripped of full citizenship, instead being granted what some NGOs have called third-rate citizenship that has limited their ability to travel, attend university, work, and other basic human rights. A similar situation is being proposed to Rohingya refugees who wish to return to Myanmar. National verification cards, commonly referred to as NVCs, 
are identity documents that the Myanmar government has offered to provide some 3,450 refugees cleared to be returned to Myanmar. But human rights officials warn that the NBCs are another form of forced apartheid and third-rate citizenship. I've spoken to a lot of Rohingya people about the national verification card process. The NVC process is kind of just another reiteration of kind of discriminatory cards that have been given out over the years to Rohingya. You know, the Rohingya were given what are called white cards back in the 1990s, and these did not confer any kind of rights either. So Rohingya are very skeptical of the NVC process. Uh, Fortify Rights has found that the NVC process uh, is, again, based off the 1982 citizenship law, which does not grant Rohingya access to full citizenship rights in the country. The NVC process, from what we can tell, also does not allow the Rohingya to self-identify as Rohingya, a lot of the time having to identify as other ethnicities, including Bengali. And these are some of the major problems. And Rohingya have been adamantly opposed to the NBC process, both publicly and privately. This is not just in the Bangladeshi refugee camps, but throughout the global diaspora. A lot of Rohingyas that we speak to cite the NBC process as one of the main concerns they have upon return. The Myanmar government has provided controlled tours of the repatriation centers that have been built in Rakhine. Surrounded by barbed wire, the structures resemble internment camps, further inciting an unwillingness for Rohingya refugees to return home without guarantees of full citizenship, says Rohingya refugee Rashid. Rohingya is just demanded, not for new citizenship, but for their own citizenship, what is denied by Myanmar government. That's why they're requesting to restore their citizen card to provide fundamental right to them. And also they are just chastened and demanding for justice, what is called international justice. There are many other barriers to Rohingya repatriation, Quinley says. I mean, right now in Rakhine State, there's still ongoing impunity for mass atrocities that are still taking place and, and persecution that is still taking place. Impunity for violations needs to stop before Rohingya can go home. That means access to accountability and justice mechanisms, reparations for land that was lost um, and goods that were lost. Uh, many Rohingya speak about wanting to go back to their original homeland. And a lot of Rohingya talk about the need for reparations. The Rohingya want to be granted and restored full citizenship rights in the country. This is one of the baseline things that needs to happen. The Rohingya also need to be granted safety and security in the country, and they cannot be going to a place that is still persecuting them. There's also the question of where the Rohingya would be returned to if they choose to go back to Myanmar. Satellite imagery shows that their villages have been completely burned to the ground. Others have military bases built on them or have been taken over by local Rakhine populations. There has been some pressure on Myanmar from the international community. Targeted sanctions have been placed on Myanmar military and government officials found to be complicit in the August 2017 attacks. The International Criminal Court has begun to take steps to open an official case against Myanmar for crimes against the Rohingya, including deportation. But Myanmar, which is not a signatory to the ICC, has continued to deny the allegations and said that the court has no jurisdiction in the country. And what takes place on an international level can have no impact on a domestic level in Myanmar. A majority of the population in Myanmar doesn't acknowledge the existence of the Rohingya, instead referring to the population as illegal Bengalis, implying that they are illegal immigrants from Bangladesh. Myanmar political activists who use the term Rohingya or advocate for Rohingya rights are often threatened online, even by fellow activists, says Mong Sung Ka, a free speech advocate and poet based in Yangon. We, we are uh, based on the Yangon, no? not, not based on the uh, 
uh, another country. Uh, so you, if you are based on the, the another country outside of Yango, you can stand Rohingya easily, very easily. But for Ed, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous. With ICC investigations historically taking years and the Myanmar government's continued denial of human rights abuses, justice for the Rohingya seems to be a faraway goal. But Sayadullah, who remains in Bangladesh, has a clear message for the international community. Are we not human in your view? Please empathize on us. Uh, we are also human as you. That special report was brought to you by Victoria Milko from the Myanmar-Bangladesh border. If you were a university student in Malaysia, how would you protest your university's participation in a political event you disagreed with? University Malaya graduate Wong Yen Ke recently stirred controversy when he held a solo protest at his university's convocation. After receiving his scroll on stage, he produced a placard with his protest demands. In response, the university lodged a police report against him. This has left many in Malaysia wondering why one of the country's most prestigious universities had such a drastic response to a one-person protest. Speaking to two university Malaya students, our editor for Bahasa Melayu slash Malaysia, Kelly Anissa, examines the participation of public universities in an event with alleged racist undertones and student activism in Malaysia's capital. University Malaya, or UM, was one of four public universities who co-organized a Malay Dignity Congress. Now, during this event, the Vice-Chancellor of UM, Abdul Rahim Hashim, had remarked in his speech that political dominance had been eliminated by the transition of power following Malaysia's last general election. He stated that the privileged position of Malays in the country was also being questioned. The chief organiser of the Malay Dignity Congress, Zainal Kling, also reminded other communities of their social contract with Malays. He said it was the basis of their citizenship and that this status could be suspended if they break the agreement. The social contract he was referring to is seen by some as a mutual agreement among Malaysia's forefathers in order to achieve independence. However, others feel it is a concept that protects the rights and privileges of the Malays in the constitution. It is sometimes used to refer to the, quote, inter-ethnic bargain by the leaders of the parties in the alliance coalition. There is, however, no mention of this social contract anywhere in the federal constitution. With Malaysia being home to multi-ethnic communities, the involvement of public universities in this congress has sparked dissatisfaction online. It was in response to all of this that prompted Yanke to stage his solar protest during graduation. He called on the vice-chancellor to resign. His placard on stage read, Tolak Rasis Undur Visi Ini Tanah Malaysia, which means reject racist, Visi withdraw, and this is Malaysia. Visi refers to Vice-Chancellor. Joining me on the segment today is Wang Yanke himself to tell me more about his protest and what has happened since. So you've received criticism online. So some say you've tarnished a solemn occasion while... Others actually praised you for your courage in taking a stance. Why did you choose your convocation ceremony to do this? Why was that platform and occasion significant? 
I mean, you could have written an article or you could have even protested outside your graduation hall and perhaps you would have gotten away with a lot less pushback than what you're experiencing right now. So why that drastic measure? I choose this platform to let everyone know that if, let's say, the, the VC, he doesn't do his, uh, he, he, he did something wrong and we have the rights to criticize him and we have the rights to uh, against him. So I, I, I'm trying to... Uh, to, to send a message, a strong message out there for the students and also for academicians to know they have the rights. It doesn't matter on uh, what occasion you are using. It's the, the most important thing is the demand and the message they want you to send out to the public. And uh, civic disobedience never, never look at what, what kind of occasion is suitable to be used. In Malaysia, most state-funded institutions like public universities have a fixed intake quota set in favour of Bumiputra citizens. Bumiputra citizens are those who are legally considered to be the descendants of the indigenous peoples of the Malay world. This system has been a controversial issue for decades, becoming an important issue for both citizens and politicians. One way to almost guarantee a spot in a public university is to go through a pre-university course called matriculation. However, the racial quota for admission to this program is 90 to 10, with the majority of slots reserved for the Bumiputras. Many non-Bumiputra students are thus unable to access this program, reducing their chances of making it into a public university. This is an indication of why issues surrounding race is often a delicate topic when it comes to public education in Malaysia. After Yanka's protest, another student by the name of Eden Konhua Eun was also banned from entering the convocation ceremony. UM said in a statement that a play card containing provocative words was also seized from the graduate. According to the university, the play card alone was sufficient proof that he had intended to disrupt the ceremony. Eden is also here with us today. So, Eden, can you explain why you were spot checked? You know, were all the other students checked as well for play cards? Uh, during that day, um, I I was the only one who has been checked uh, by the security. There's few reasons now because if if you understand uh, on University of Malaya activism, uh, I I was one of the prominent figure, also with my other other friends in in from same organization, Umani. Uh, I also online publicly supported uh, Yenke campaign by posting up the gesture, the, the cross-handed gesture. So these institutions that have taken part in this congress that allegedly champions for racial supremacy, how do non-Bumiputra students like the both of you, you know, who happen to fall under the minority due to the admission quota, you know, you know, what do you think, you know, how do you think something like this will affect students like yourself? Currently, what I'm fighting for is the universal value, which is equality. But uh, when I'm trying to defend this value, I think which is uh, it will be beneficial for everyone of us because we're respecting each other as a person and we respect your dignity, we respect your rights. This is the one that we, 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 when we say equality because uh, we, we treat each other equally. But the problem is when we talk about this, even though I'm trying to fight for this value, you can see how, the, uh, how, how they threaten me in the social media. As, as you can see, even though for the political parties in uh, University of Malaya, they, was, they were just using everything um, uh, from what politicians say. What I mean right now is uh, what 
VC say in the Congress will worsen the situation because we already have this kind of misconception with each other. But what VC make is like, I give you another uh, reaffirmation that uh, this is correct. So that's why uh, we, we feel very sad and we feel very upset about this. <laughs> it's Malaysia and, and we should be equal citizens, not like there's a first class and the second class. We share the political power together, not yeah, divide by each other. Your protest has also highlighted the issue of identity politics in Malaysia. You know, so what role can the youth play in making this a turning point for Malaysian identity politics? I think the f- there are two things uh, I think the youth can do. Okay, the first is start to engage to the topics. Okay, and start try to redefine the relationship between races. Instead of following the rhetoric of the politician, where they define the 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 relationship for us, because I think youth as as a leader of the future, and we are responsible to redefine how we how we how are we gonna to work with other races, not the politician decide for us. And second thing is, especially in public universities, the youth should act as a power of check and balance to an authority. Actually, I know, I, I think what youth can do is they can try to be outspoken because I know actually there are a lot of progressive youth, progressive-minded youth uh, outside there, but they are afraid of uh, being labelled, being labelled as, uh, like for um, non-Bumi, they will say, oh, you are racist. Because what they are trying to illegitimate uh, your action, your fight, is to, to straight away label youth as a racist. So what I'm trying to say is uh, you should be more outspoken no matter how they are going to labor with you. Just make sure that what you, you are standing on principle. This is the first thing. Then the second thing is uh, never thought uh, your effort couldn't make any changes. Remember, if let's say you are every, every student are together, every youth are together, and you are facing with only one authority, I'm pretty sure they will going to listen to us. That report was brought to you by Kelly Anissa speaking with Wong Yang Ke and Iran Konhua'en in Kuala Lumpur. In September this year, Singapore's Yale and US College cancelled a week-long program examining dissent and its contours in the city-state. The cancellation sparked a discussion, played out, as usual for Singapore, largely online, about academic freedom. But another conversation ran in parallel, questioning the role of dissent, activism and resistance in the country. Our editor-in-chief, Kirsten Han, who'd been scheduled to facilitate a democracy classroom as part of the program, reflects on attitudes towards dissent and activism in Singapore. Activism is a bit of a dirty word in Singapore. In 2018, the vice-principal of a Singaporean high school told his students that activism was socially divisive and goes against the very grain of what we stand for. He isn't the only one who thinks this way. In a one-party state where it doesn't take very much to be cast as anti-government or anti-establishment, dissent and resistance is often seen as disruptive and dangerous, rather than as a legitimate or even desirable part of society. Activists are often accused of putting Singapore down or of not loving the country. As such, it doesn't make much of a ripple when new laws and regulations further restrain civil liberties or when activists face repercussions for their work. This attitude against activism and dissent was recently seen even from Singapore's education minister, Ong Ye Kung. 
speaking in Parliament in response to questions over Yale and U.S.'s cancellation of the program. Ong said that academic institutions should not work with speakers and instructors who have been convicted of public order-related offences, or who are working with political advocacy groups funded by foreigners, or who openly show disloyalty to Singapore. Under this umbrella description might come Singaporean activists who have been convicted of crimes for staging protests or even doing performance art, people who haven't expressed love for the nation-state in an establishment-approved fashion, and even Singaporeans who work with platforms like New Narrative. Quoting selectively from a poem that had been written in 1998, Ong suggested that Alfian Saad, the poet and playwright who had curated the cancelled program, did not love Singapore. He also took aim at the concept of political conscientization, describing it as agitation aimed at making people conscious of the oppression in their lives, so that they would take action against these oppressive elements. When I saw this comment reported in the media, my first thought was, is that bad? As a Singaporean, I'd hoped that if my fellow citizens saw oppression in their lives, they'd be willing to do something about it, whether it's to help themselves or others. It is, after all, what many of our pioneer generation did when they stood up against colonialism. We wouldn't be where we are today if people hadn't taken a stand then. Far from something that we should be afraid of, activism is one way for people to participate in the society that they live in, above and beyond the once-in-every-five-years exercise of heading to the ballot box. It's a way for ordinary people to hold those in power accountable, and to exercise their basic human rights, including the rights to freedom of thought, freedom of expression, and freedom of assembly. These are enshrined in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, a document adopted by the United Nations in 1948 to set out the fundamental human rights that need to be universally protected for people everywhere. There is no requirement for one to align oneself with the government, express oneself in establishment-approved ways, or even profess love for a nation-state before one can have access to these rights. We just all have them. It might not always be comfortable when people take a position, advocate, or take action for the causes they believe in. But learning how to deal with such discomfort can make a society much more resilient. When we figure out how to navigate tension and conflict, and to engage people with a range of views, even strong ones, that's when it becomes much more difficult to sow discord or take advantage of social fault lines. This is all, of course, easier said than done. But we shouldn't be too afraid to start and Singaporeans have in fact already begun. Regardless of whether the Yale NUS program went ahead or not, young Singaporeans have already proven themselves willing and adept at advocating for their causes, be it LGBT rights, combating sexual violence on campus, or the climate crisis. They are enthusiastic and committed, and thoughtful about the choices they make and the actions they take. Far from being afraid of teaching young Singaporeans about activism, dissent, and resistance, we need to recognise that in many cases there is no need to teach them. They already have access to news and articles and resources online that tell them what they need to know, and they are more than capable of making decisions for themselves. Instead, what we should be doing is working out how we can best support their energy and their passion, and to stand with them in their struggles to make the world a better place. That comment piece was brought to you by Kirsten Hahn in Singapore. If you'd like to hear more about youth activism in Singapore, look out for our upcoming episode of Political Agenda, our podcast focused on issues of national importance in Singapore. And that's all for this episode. We'd like to thank our contributors, Victoria Milko, Kelly Anissa and Kirsten Hahn for making this episode possible. 
Check out our website at newnarrative.com slash hello for more stories from Southeast Asia. And if you'd like to support what we're doing, then please do consider subscribing to New Narrative at newnarrative.com slash join. Subscriptions start at just 52 US dollars a year. That's only one US dollar a week. This is PJ Thumb wishing all of our listeners a great week ahead. Sampai jumpa!